The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Last week we started uh, a new topic looking at the art of concentration and uh, the inevitable result of expanded states. Just like we all know very well that we could bring up some really juicy or difficult experience, maybe some painful experience from the past, and then if I allowed my mind to really dwell on it, I could get myself in a very powerfully contracted state. I bet every one of us, one way or another, could get ourselves into a contracted state by just letting the mind dwell. You know, basically, if we pay attention to something with ignorance, if we pay attention to pain or things we crave in an ignorant way, we're going to whip up some kind of self-centered storm and it will be quite contracting. So if we know that we can move in this direction to more limited, contracted, painful states of mind, then it makes sense that we can go in the other direction, that we could be paying attention to different objects with wisdom, and the mind would release whatever is limited or whatever is constricting and the mind will begin to experience more and more expansion or uh, you know, a beautiful state of mind, an expanded state of mind. And so part of what meditation is about is just understanding this whole spectrum. It isn't even so much about controlling like where we are along the spectrum, but just understanding that when the mind is in a really heavy, contracted state, that's how it is. And when the mind is in a really beautiful, expanded state, that's how it is. And the more we're mindful of how the mind naturally moves along this continuum, the more the mind intuits, understands how, it, how to move along that continuum. So as we start to move in this direction, the mind knows I'm moving in this direction. Things are becoming more limited, more heavy, more contracted or if the mind is moving in this other direction, it just knows that it's, the mind is expanding. It's releasing. It's opening up. Feeling, experiencing freedom. The qualities, the wholesome qualities of love. That's an expanded state. Not sort of personal love, but more of a spiritual love. That's a beautifully expanded state when that's what the mind is abiding in. Part of this practice um, you know, really understanding what we mean by samadhi or concentration, it's really a resting in the expanded states of mind. You can get concentrated with greed and aversion. You know, people always say, well, like a burglar is quite concentrated. Like they don't want to get caught. Or, you know, if you want to get something, you really want it, you can get quite concentrated. That's concentration that arises out of greed and aversion. We're talking in terms of wholesome or spiritual concentration. It's more of a, an abiding in wholesome states. 
an expanded state. We're actually learning the skill of resting the mind in expanded, beautiful states. We don't get there through greed and aversion. Like if you really want to attain an expanded state of consciousness, the really wanting to attain it is not the means to attaining it. Or being afraid that you're going to always have your ordinary mundane state of mind. Being angry or frustrated isn't going to lead to a beautiful, expanded state of mind. These expanded or beautiful states of concentration are really defined by a pleasantness that is different than other kinds of pleasant sense experiences. Because it's the pleasantness that arises when the mind is released from having to create pleasant experience. You know, so much of what we're doing all the time is doing something to make our experience nicer getting rid of something, getting something. But the pleasantness is exactly the pleasantness of not having to do that. There's a well-known Buddhist saint, uh, Nagarjuna, who lived about 500 years after the time of the Buddha. And uh, he wrote, there is pleasure when a sore is scratched, but, it, but to be without sores is more pleasurable still. Just so, there are pleasures and worldly desires, but to be without desires is more pleasurable still. So there's a certain pleasure that arises when I'm sitting in my meditation and I'm thinking about what I really want, what's exciting to me, or even thinking about fixing my body, like getting into shape or something. That can be pleasant, just imagining, you know, really making things right. So on some level, there's some juice there, there's some pleasantness there. But it's stressful, too, to have to keep generating that desire, that wanting, that hope. But when the mind doesn't need to do anything to be happy, to get rid of what's unpleasant, that's a different kind of peace and happiness, a more resonant happiness, when, when the mind isn't chasing any desire isn't caught by any desire. So this is that inner pleasantness or that inner bliss of concentration. Another characteristic of these expanded states, so one is this happiness, this unworldly happiness, as opposed to a worldly happiness, like when we get what we want, or we imagine getting what we want, or imagine getting rid of what we don't want. These are worldly happinesses. So there's an unworldly happiness. And then another characteristic of these expanded or concentrated states of mind is an increase in sensitivity. It's almost you know, like uh, people talk about in, in the Buddhist tradition as well, psychic powers. So it's not that psychic powers or extraordinary sensitivity is somehow special. It's just the development of sensitivity. If we're overwhelmed by life, stressed and overwhelmed by life, then our sensitivity is going to be here. When we're less stressed, we're just going to be more sensitive. Being overwhelmed means we're just not able to attend very carefully to what's happening. 
because the mind is absorbed in all of its worries and all of its anticipation and expectation. But when the mind isn't being fragmented in that way by its worries, its fears, its hopes and dreams, and just more settled, one of the characteristics of being settled is a stability and sensitivity. And it almost feels extraordinary, like we have psychic powers. How did I know that? But it isn't psychic in the sense of like, all of a sudden we have another sense that we didn't have before. It's just the senses are coming alive. The intuition is coming alive. The mind is just perceiving what's always been here, but it's just been too dull to notice. Now this sensitivity is really important in practice. It really sets up this next attribute of concentrated or expanded state. But we have to understand sensitivity is, on the one hand, really wonderful. When you walk outside and the green seem greener and the blue seem bluer, and everything seems more fresh and alive and interesting. That's the nice side of sensitivity. But when we experience dukkha or stress or dark, difficult experience with more sensitivity, then we're more aware, more awake. The difficulty feels more intense, more intensely difficult. So that's just what comes with sensitivity. And part of practice is just learning to be, to live with more sensitivity. Like you're around somebody who's really in a difficult place. They may not even know it, but you're really sensitive to their difficulty. And we want to react. That's what we do when we're around people whose pain we don't like. You know, either we want to fix them, we don't even want to be around them because it's just too intense to be around them. The nice thing about developing more and more sensitivity is it creates the incentive to develop wisdom. Because it's only wisdom that makes sensitivity tolerable. When we're really profoundly sensitive to everything around us and in us, the only thing that allows the heart to relax when we're aware of everything is wisdom. Wisdom really understands things in terms of nature. Everything is just the natural unfolding of process and conditions. So we participate in that natural unfolding, but we don't take it personally. We don't feel overwhelmed when it's bad, or we don't feel prideful when it's good. It's just what it is, the natural unfolding of causes and conditions. So this is an expression of wisdom. And that's really the third part, the third fruit of developing concentration. The first is there's pleasantness here and now. Just the inner stability and stillness and peacefulness, the non-agitation of the mind is experienced as an inner bliss. It's, in a way, it's funny that not being agitated is experienced as something so beautiful. You know, it's the non-dissipation, the non-fragmentation of the mind is experience of being very pleasant and peaceful, a kind of a wholeness and safety, and the development of sensitivity. And then the third is the inevitable arising of insight. 
because of the sensitivity, the mind starts to notice, to understand what it didn't understand before or didn't notice before. So we begin to wake up to what's always been true, but we've just been too distracted to notice. But these insights, some are relatively ordinary, but some are, are definitely uh, earth-shattering. I mean, they, they really rock our world because ways of understanding that we have been quite dependent on become uprooted because they just aren't true. They were just way too superficial, too simplistic. And now with more stability, more sensitivity, the mind understands things in different ways. I'm sure you've heard, I'll just repeat it briefly, but one of these insights that arises inevitably in practice, the more a person develops concentration, that stability of mindfulness, the continuity of mindfulness. This is another definition of concentration in the way that I'm talking about it. It's just the continuity of mindful awareness or present moment awareness. The unbrokenness of the present moment awareness is what we mean by concentration. And when that's happening, then the mind is inevitably going to see things as they actually are, and that will challenge our superficial notions that are things are this way, which was, which came from the culture. You know, we, we got programmed by our culture that things are this way, and then all of a sudden we see things as they are, we realize they're not that way, they're this way, this other way. And there's this can be powerful paradigm shifts in how we understand how we relate to the world. And one of the most obvious in the Buddhist practice is we generally, we've been programmed, you know, we teach little kids to take things personally. That's me, that's mine, that's you. And inevitably, as the concentration deepens and there's more stability, more continuity of mindful awareness, what just becomes more and more obvious, either in little glimpses or big gulps, is it's all impersonal. There isn't a center to experience. Experience isn't happening to anybody in the way that we superficially think it is. Now, I know this is a very strong assumption we all live with to some degree. It just seems so obvious that this is happening to me. But and you can just take this as, like, with an open mind, that that's just a misperception that arises when we're not paying attention carefully. We don't have the continuity of mindfulness. And so this, this development of insight is inevitable, unavoidable, can't be stopped if we develop the continuity of mindfulness or concentration or the Pali word is samadhi. If we develop right concentration, not concentration based on greed or aversion, we're inevitably going to have insight. We're going to start seeing things we haven't seen. And that will transform our understanding, how we understand and how we live in the world. So then the question, of course, is, well, what is this training? How do we cultivate the continuity of mindfulness, present moment awareness? And the Buddha talked about this in, in a number of different ways. I mean, initially, what we need is a lot of humility. That 
that our way of being, the sort of the way our mind currently is, isn't really up to the job of developing real happiness, a resonant happiness. It's like we have enough consciousness, you know, to not bump into too many things and to not, you know, have too many accidents when we're driving and too many implosions in our relationships. You know, we're paying attention enough but we're not paying attention enough to break through our habits. So we're still quite governed by the strong pre-existing views, habitual views that we've been programmed through our culture to believe or to have. This is the great thing about concentration is um, when the mind is deeply invested in mindful awareness. It has to let go of everything else. There is no way for my mind to be profoundly present in a continuous way without letting go of everything else my mind is doing. So right now, one of the things my mind is doing, unconsciously really, is it's projecting all sorts of uh, ideas, projecting ideas or free uh, assumptions on my experience. But the more I invest in just that bare, simple attention, give my heart, my mind to that task of that continuity of this simple, relaxed, clear attention, the less my mind is able to project ideas like that's Lewis and this is Mark and be confused by those projections. And the more the mind comes into a radical simplicity of just seeing and hearing and thinking and touching and smelling and tasting. And the rapidity of change of all those sensescapes. You know, that the seeing isn't one thing. It's this moment of seeing is not this moment of seeing. Even if the eyes are looking directed in the same way, it's not the same moment of seeing. And the moment, this moment of hearing is not the same as the next moment of hearing. And this moment of thought is not the next moment of thought. So that's one of the things that the continuity of mindfulness is, reveals is how um, endemic experience is with change. It's just more than anything experience is defined by its change, changing nature. How ephemeral it is. It isn't a thing. There are no nouns, no sort of this is what's happening. This is how it is. It's more what we see is the process of change. Seeing as a process of change. Hearing as a process of change. Thinking as a process of change. Touching sensation as a process of change. It just starts to stand out more and more the more stable, concentrated the mind is. So we need a humility. We have to enter the mental training, you know, this mental development of developing samadhi, this continuity of mindfulness with humility, because otherwise we lose, we'd have no reason to do it. If we don't have humility, we think, God, my state of consciousness is certainly sufficient to get me through my day. Why spend all this time to develop the mind? Because it, you know, I feel like I'm awake already. I'm present already. I'm seeing everything that needs to be seen already. This is called arrogance. You know, thinking we're already experiencing, seeing, understanding, 
everything there is to see is really what the Buddha means by delusion. So there's three things that need to be abandoned. This is really another definition of samadhi or right concentration is the absence of greed, aversion, and delusion from the mind. And one of the most profound expressions of delusion is assuming that our current state of mind is sufficient. It's like all that the mind can do, that we're seeing everything that needs to be seen. You know, one of the things that we can be inspired by when, you know, the saints, whatever tradition, come back from the mountaintop or the cave or their living room sitting cushion, you know, and tell us it's not what you think, you know, and share as best they can in words like a different reality that's always here, always has been here, but is being missed by everybody almost. Now we can either, you know, nail them to a cross or put them in a, a mental institution or we can open our mind with humility that, well, maybe there's more than what we're perceiving because of distraction, because of stress, because we just haven't trained the mind. We haven't trained or we haven't uncovered the natural sensitivity, the radiance of the mind. In the Tibetan tradition, they talk about the nature of the mind as being radiant and empty and, uh, and responsive, compassionate. So we need to uncover this natural, essential radiance of the mind, the mind that knows effortlessly, clearly. And empty means empty of greed and aversion and delusion. Empty of anything that obscures radiance, obscures the brightness, the beauty, the stability of the mind. It's only attachment or clinging that dis disrupts or disturbs the mind. When the mind is free of all the different ways it clings to aversion, to delusion, to grasping or wanting rather, then that natural radiance is there and all that's left is the emptiness of greed, anger and delusion, the radiance and this natural, unbounded willingness to respond, to do whatever needs to be done. So it isn't a passive, you know, I'm just this radiant light, but, but being embodied, there's this life energy, and now because it's not affected by greed and aversion, it's just going to respond, it's just going to do whatever needs to be done, but now it's understanding things deeply, so it really knows how to be a, a good actor in the world take care of things, leave things alone that don't need touching, and do what does need to be done. One of the ways the Buddha talked about this training over and over again is in terms of, and, and this might push some of your buttons, but restraint of the senses or guarding the sense gates is another way it's translated. But I just want to explain this because it's, it's really a preliminary training for us. We all need to do this. There's a particular discourse that I like where one of the lay people went up to the Buddha. It was traditional at the time of the Buddha that if you wanted, if you had some questions or just wanted to have a Dharma discussion with one of the monks or with the Buddha himself, 
you would wait until after they had collected their one meal for the day. They would wander into the local nearest town or village with their bowl and receive any gifts of food that people wanted to offer, and then they'd go back out, have their meal, and then after that they would be available to have discussions, give advice or instruction to people who wanted it. And so Kundalina, this lay person, came up to the Buddha and asked, now in the experience of what reward does Master Gotama dwell? Gotama was his family name. Now in the experience of what reward? Like, what have you gotten from your practice? That's a very good question. The Buddha said, the Tathagata, which is how he referred to himself, dwells experiencing the reward of the fruits of clear knowing and release. Clear knowing is just another way of saying the simple, profound radiance of mind, the mind that knows things as they are, and the heart that's released of greed, anger, and delusion. That's the fruit of the practice. That's what we mean by nirvana or nibbana. It is clear knowing and release. The heart, mind, that is naturally, effortlessly radiant, seeing things as they are, and fully released of any of the obscurations or defilements or heaviness like greed, anger, and delusion. And then this person, being a wise guy, said, well, what are the qualities that, when developed and pursued, lead to the culmination of clear knowing and release? That's what we'd want to know, too. Like, well, what did you do that allowed for the clear knowing and release? And the Buddha said, I developed the seven factors of awakening, which is his way of talking about this beautiful balance. There are seven factors of awakening the Buddha taught. Mindfulness, and then three energizing and three tranquilizing factors. When we bring all seven together in a balanced way, then the mind inevitably will be will realize this experience of clear knowing and release, or the cessation of suffering, or awakening, or freedom, or nibbana, or whatever the words that people talk about. So it's just a matter of the mind coming into balance. And when the mind gets close to balance, we start to have insight. And then when we take that insight personally, we lose our balance. Or when we get greedy for more insight, we lose the balance. Or when we're frightened by the insight, we lose the balance. So then we have to sort of rediscover how to come back to that balance, that place of insight. So the three energizing, investigation, energy, and rapture, these are what brighten the mind. And then to sort of balance and ground that brightness, we have tranquility, concentration, and equanimity on the tranquilizing side of the equation. And we have to balance these three on both sides. And it's mindfulness that recognizes how the balance is doing. Do we need more energizing going on or more tranquilizing going on? What will support a more beautiful balance of mind? And then Kundalini asked, Kundalina asked, well, what are the qualities that when developed lead to the culmination of this beautiful balance of the seven factors of awakening? And the Buddha says, developing the four foundations of mindfulness, which is just his way of teaching mindfulness of the body and mind, the continuous mindfulness of body and mind, or the continuous mindfulness of our experience. Because our experience is defined by body and mind. 
we have mental experience and we have physical experience and that's it and if we're continuously mindful of the body and mind then we'll support the rising of this balance and so then he asked well how do you develop the four foundations of mindfulness and the Buddha responded through right thinking right speaking and right action so a profound commitment to non-harming basically not harming with our thoughts not thinking in violent ways in aggressive ways in mean ways not speaking in mean ways and with ill will and not acting with ill will this is how we develop mindfulness because when we're acting out basically we can't be mindful mindfulness depends on that purity of attention right if we're being mindful of the body or mind mindful of the breath for example we can't have ill will we can't be thinking with ill will or speaking with ill will because ill will by definition depends on attachment we've got to be caught up in the ill will in order for it to be ill will if we're mindful of ill will it's not ill will if you're mindful that there's anger in the mind you're not angry you're mindful that there's anger in the mind when we're actually caught in the anger and acting it out then we're actually angry right so when we're angry we can't be mindful when we're mindful we can't be angry so if we want to develop the four foundations of mindfulness we have to have you know a heart mind that's free of ill will make sense and the person asks well how do you do that and the Buddha answered restraining of the senses so I wanted to say a few things about this before we open it up for discussion tonight so this is what the Buddha says first he says and how does restraint of the senses when developed and pursued lead to the culmination of the three courses of right conduct like how do you actually restrain the senses that support non-ill will in our thoughts in our words in our actions and he says there is a case where a practitioner on seeing a pleasant form with the eye doesn't hanker after it doesn't delight in it doesn't give rise to passion for it unmoved in body unmoved in mind one is inwardly well composed and well released on seeing an unpleasant form with the eye one is not upset one's mind is not unsettled one's feelings are not wounded one's mind does not become resentful unmoved in body and unmoved in mind one is inwardly well composed and well released so when we see something pleasant or see something unpleasant the mind remains unmoved it isn't confused by the pleasantness of what we see or the unpleasantness of what we see now of course as you might imagine the Buddha goes through all of the six sense gates so seeing hearing smelling tasting physical touches and then thinking so he says the same thing you know if you think a pleasant thought or think an unpleasant thought you know without hankering after it unmoved in body unmoved in mind well composed that's how you should be with a pleasant or unpleasant thought sight taste touch smell sound so this is how we restrain the senses we don't restrain the senses by poking out our eyes and plucking out our ears and floating in a float tank you know where you're not having very obvious sense contact 
no sound, no sight, if it's clean, no smell. One of our community members, Richard Bonk, uh, has done a lot of flotation. Uh, he works at the Wellness Center down in South Minneapolis, and he got me a, uh, gave me a, a slot to use a float tank, which I've never done before. It's very nice. You know, because one of the things that supports meditation is having few distractions. And they, I don't know how many pounds of Epsom salts they pour in the water so you float. You know, so you're just floating there and you're floating high enough so you don't have any problem breathing. You know, you're not getting water in your nose or mouth. And that's completely dark and mostly soundproof. You can hear a little background hum, but very little sound. And the temperature is just right. Very nice. <laughs> so you have to go back into the world. But so our practice, and this is this is one of the big trainings in sitting meditation, is we're practicing being unmoved in body, unmoved in mind. And you then it makes sense. Like, well, why do you sit still when we're meditating? You know, it'd be so much easier to every time we feel uncomfortable to adjust the body. But the point is that. We want the mind to train in being unmoved, not confused by any of the six sense gates that might, experiences in the six sense gates that might arise. So if we do have a smell, someone passes gas and we smell something or somebody moves and makes a sound or we see something, either the eyes are closed and we imagine, which is one form of seeing, or the eyes are open and we see somebody doing something or hear something or think something. This is happening all the time. So how can we train the mind in being unmoved, not confused? So it's really about that. This is what mindfulness allows. When we're mindful about what's arising in our experience as we're sitting, if we're mindful, we'll see there's always a choice. We can react to the particular sense experience, whatever it is. For example, if we're, let's say we have this beautiful continuity of awareness with the breath. We can still have the reaction like, I don't like it, it's boring, right? So then we have this choice. We can either get identified and act out the boredom, you know, huff and puff and complain about how boring being mindful of the breath is, or we have this other choice, which is to be unmoved, not confused by the arising of boredom. So instead, boredom is understood as just a thought or an emotion that has arisen in the field of experience and will pass away. And every single sense experience that we have while we're sitting, there's going to be this choice. The heart, mind remaining unmoved, not confused by it, seeing it as just the movement of nature, or taking the experience personally and reacting according to our habit. You know, how are we habitually, how have we habitually reacted to these kinds of experiences, similar experiences? And then we react in that way. We react by ignoring experience. That's one very obvious reaction. Like, remember I mentioned earlier how concentration develops sensitivity. Well, one of the ways we're not sensitive is, we don't realize it, but the mind is in a big habit of ignoring 99% of our experiencing. Right? So the more mindful we become, the more we realize how much we are, are actually experiencing all the time. But when we're 
um, not mindful, we just shut off so much. Basically, we're just picking up a little bit of our experience, and then we think about our experience. So mostly we're thinking about our experience and cut off from everything else. But when we're mindful, there's an inclusivity in the mindfulness. Even though we may be, in a sense, concentrated on the in-breath, we're not shutting off anything. That's part of the characteristic of mindfulness. We're not excluding anything. What's predominant will present itself sort of on center stage. But the interest, the seeing or knowing that experience isn't about excluding the other experience. It's about being interested in what's present. And sometimes the mindfulness will have a great breath, you know, like a peripheral awareness of all the different senses. And sometimes you'll have a great depth where we're really just naturally attending to what's on center stage, what's predominant in the moment. And therefore, everything else is far off, in a sense, in the distance. But we haven't shut it off. But it's just there in the distance. And there always remains, however faint, some peripheral sense of the whole. There's never like, I'm running away from that experience, so I'm going to focus here. Now, of course, that kind of concentration does happen, but it's not called right concentration. It's called aversion. When we concentrate, like when we have a lot of pain in our body and we bring our attention somewhere else, it might actually be skillful, but it's not ultimately right concentration. Right concentration isn't about pushing away or suppressing, even though there may be moments in practice where we have to do that just to manage overwhelming experience. So I just want to end by sharing a few words from Ayakema, this wonderful German nun, Buddhist nun. She had a very interesting life. She's got a wonderful autobiography if you're ever interested in reading it. Um, forget the name of it. But uh, she was uh, in Germany, a Jewish person in Germany, right before the war, World War II, and just got out weeks to spare, basically. Um, and eventually came to the States, got interested in Buddhism, ordained as a Buddhist nun, and spent many years teaching before she died about 15 years ago. And this is her book, Who Is Myself? And here she's talking about sense pleasures and about um, guarding the sense gates, being aware of what's being seen and smelled and tasted and touched and thought and heard with wisdom, being aware with wisdom. And she says, mostly we, we have been influenced by our culture to think that we have senses in order to be happy. Like the reason we have eyes, for example, is so we can look at pleasant sights and get some happiness from it. And the reason we have taste buds is so we can taste pleasant food. And the reason we have the experience of touching is so we can touch pleasant objects. But that's just a mistaken idea. And we probably know this. The reason we have senses, we have sensitivity, so we can survive, right? That's what the sense gates are about, including the thinking. It's just a survival mechanism. It's not about making one happy. But see, this is what's happened as our thinking and our language has become more complicated. We've gotten really confused because there are, in fact, pleasant sense experiences. I mean, we all know that. 
the Buddha knew that. But sense experience isn't about, the purpose of sensitivity isn't about making the ego happy. It's a misguided notion. And yet we spend our whole life using our sensitivity, you know, the seeing, the hearing, the smelling, the tasting, the touching, and the thinking in order to make us happy. No wonder we're frustrated and existentially sort of adrift because we're using sensitivity for a purpose it never had. It was never about becoming happy. Happiness doesn't come through the sensecape, but that's what we pursue. And when we get frustrated pursuing happiness through the sense gate, we just try another, another avenue. When TV's not doing it for us, we turn the music on. When music's not doing it for us, we call a friend. When a friend's not doing it for us, we take a drink. It's like we keep looking to the senses to deliver happiness to the sense of self. Endlessly frustrated by that. So Ayakema says, if we guard our senses, we guard our passion, which enable us to live with far greater equanimity. We are no longer on that endless seesaw, up when we're getting what we want, down when we're not, which induces a continual feeling of wanting, something that just escapes us. Nothing that is to be had in the world anywhere under any circumstances is capable of bringing fulfillment. So this is just another way of saying what I just said a few seconds ago. Nothing that is to be had in the world anywhere under any circumstances is capable of bringing fulfillment. And just think about how many things we've gotten that we wanted. But are we fulfilled? Did it really take care of us? No. We still want more, right? She goes on, she says, all that the world can provide are sense contacts. Seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and thinking. All are short-lived and have to be renewed over and over again. This takes time and energy. And here again, it is not the sense contact itself that satisfies us. It is what the mind makes of it. Guarding the sense doors is one of the most important things we can do. If we want to lead a peaceful, harmonious, untroubled by wanting, harmonious life, untroubled by wanting what we do not have or not wanting what we do have, these are the only two causes for dukkha or suffering. There are no others. If we watch our sense contacts and do not go past the labeling, the basic seeing or knowing, we have a very good chance of being at ease. If we watch our sense contacts, the sense gate, with wisdom, I'd add, and do not go past labeling, right? Okay, that's being, it's pain in the knee, you know, tension or twisting or burning in the knee. Hearing, it's just hearing. If we just, we're aware, we're engaged, we're present, but the mind isn't proliferating or getting confused by the pleasantness or unpleasantness of what's being experienced then, as she says, we have a very good chance of being happy or being at ease. So, we have about 10 minutes. It would be nice to hear from people. Maybe you've got some experiences working with your sense that come to mind. Yeah. Then please say your name. My name is Dan. Uh, I'm 
comes up in regards to my, I mean, in the, one thing that I paid a lot of attention to with personal friends lately is that, um, or all intrinsic conversations and the slow hands start waking up. Maybe a little louder, Jim. Uh, sometimes I think I, it, I know in my past I've become so intellectual about that only via the best case have I been able to take some, and it, and it does feel wise, but, you know, sometimes it's simple as getting massage or uh, actually giving some natural beauty, you know, in the spring. And while I understand we can kind of get wrapped, too wrapped up in that, and that can go into a place where you're actually um, seeking entertainment. Yeah. Um, and and I, I don't really know in terms of the teachings what the line is to draw in terms of even those maybe more healthy, uh, uh, the healthiest connections. Yeah. No, it's a really important point, and I, I think it is nuanced. So James is talking about, you know, there are skillful times, there are times when it's quite skillful to give your mind a very strong sense experience. But what we're doing with that strong sense experience is we're using it to release the mind from some other unwholesome engagement. So if I'm really worrying about something, it might be really nice to go take a walk in a nice place. Because the walk gives the mind an opportunity to absorb into the walking, into the beauty, and therefore let go of this neurotic thinking. And there are many ways to do that. So there really is a, a place, it's like medicine. When your mind is obsessing in different ways, and, you, and mindfulness of the obsession itself isn't strong enough to free the mind of that obsession, then give your mind something really strong to pay attention to. Exactly, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that you do for a little kid. If a kid is doing something dangerous with something they shouldn't be playing with, instead of just grabbing that thing and pulling it away from them, because then you're going to have an angry kid, you give them something they really want to play with. You say, how about this? You know, that's what we do with our cat. We, we spent a lot of money on really nice things for her to scratch, you know, so she doesn't scratch in the things we don't want her to scratch. And we do the same thing with the mind. We give it something it likes. Now, you're right. There can be a shadow where it gets attached to that nice thing we've given it. But that will hurt. And so we'll eventually see that, that we, we can be with that beauty <clears throat> without getting attached. And this is an important training. I remember once in the middle of a long retreat where my mind was quite concentrated, watching a beautiful sunset over a beautiful pond in New England, during the fall, all the leaves, crystal clear, sun going down, orange sky, a mirror-like pond, and, uh, and just so the mind was seen, and it was aware of the beauty, and I was aware that the mind wanted to sort of trip out on the beauty, like proliferate or get attached to the beauty. And I just saw the mind going back and forth, like just letting the beauty, letting the seeing be seen, and then when the mind wanted to do more. And then always, every time the mind started to do more, realizing anything more is stressful. The only thing that is really, when you're really mindful, the only thing to do with a beautiful object is just to be present with it. Any sort of proliferation, any sense of ownership, 
any desire for it to continue actually gets in the way of the beauty. But the heart is quite in the habit of wanting to own the beautiful experience. So that's what you have to be on the lookout for. When you give your mind something really beautiful to experience, whatever it might be, just notice the mind wanting to own it in some way. And then realize it doesn't help. It actually takes from the beauty, takes from the, the, the niceness of just being with the beauty and back off, back off of that proliferation or that attachment. Yeah, thanks, James. Yeah, that's key. Um, in a word that um, all things come and go, isn't it also Initially, mindfulness comes and goes as the habits of the mind reassert themselves. But the more you practice, you'll get periods of time where an insight will arise that mindfulness isn't something somebody has to do. And it's like a beginning of a revolution in practice where instead of mindfulness being something that I do in order to be skillful in the world, it's more that uh, mindfulness is what's there when I, the mind isn't involved in neurotic activity. And it's the insight is really that mindfulness is inherently effortless. But it's not our initial experience at all. Initially, it feels like a lot of work to be mindful. But the work isn't so much to be mindful. The work is about not being confused by our habit to be distracted. That takes a lot of work to not be confused by the impulse to be distracted, to get absorbed in here or react to that. So we have to be vigilant to not be confused. But after a while, it's so much the habit of the mind to just be present that there will be periods where the work in practice is, the effort is to not do anything. Like remembering, honey, you don't have to do anything. Because our habit is always to do, like I have to be mindful. And then we have to tease out that habit to try to be mindful. Because now it's in the way. Before, it was essential. It's a really good habit to remember this desire, this wholesome desire to want to be mindful. But later, it gets in the way. And it's like trusting mindfulness instead of doing the mindfulness. But that's a, generally, for most people, that doesn't happen until later and generally in when there's some momentum, like in the middle of a retreat having periods of time. And then presumably when people's practice is really developed, it be just it becomes more and more of the way they are. Yeah. What's your name? I'm Christine and I just you know go off with distractions sometimes what I find distracting sometimes is you know, being sensitive and thinking about how how others may judge me. You know, whether it's I'm holding myself for the day or how I go about, you know, walking through a forest if I think somebody's watching me or something. You know, just being comfortable with myself and acknowledging that other people may not always be comfortable with what I'm doing. You know, I may be a single woman going out on my own or doing something, but I can be comfortable with myself and not allowing maybe their judgment or whatnot to distract me from being happy. Enjoying the moment. Right. 
And that's a really good point. And just to sort of uh, talk about the practice in this slide, and we can end here. On a one part of practice is exactly as you described, where the mind sees its two alternatives, like to be obsessed by what people are thinking about us, which is something we all probably know, versus just seeing that that's stressful and not necessary. And so this involves some thinking, like we're imagining, oh, I could get really obsessed about what that person's thinking about me, but why? You know, until we're sort of um, using our imagination, using skillful thinking to really understand that there's another way. I don't have to do that. That this ha can happen very quickly with mindfulness. So without any thought, as soon as like you see somebody and maybe just as that wave of fear or that wave of self-consciousness arises in the mind, immediately the mind sees that, is mindful of that. So instead of having to convince ourselves that I don't need to think about that, it, it happens in just an instant of seeing that that wave of self-consciousness is not self. It's just a habit. It's just that yucky feeling. And we see it, but we don't take it personally. We don't get identified, and we don't allow it even to come to the level of thought. It's seen before it's even a thought fully formed. So initially, it is more of how you described it, where we have to basically talk ourselves out of unskillfulness and talk ourselves into being skillful. And so there's a lot of reflecting going on. And that's more of the therapeutic side of practice and essential, you know. And in the more sticky parts of our life, even if your practice is really developed, in the more sticky parts of life, we're still going to be doing that, even when you're quite far along in your practice. But the more we practice, the more we don't even have to think about what's skillful and unskillful. It's just happening. Wisdom is working. And like I was saying with Metsky's comment, that wisdom is working, that mindfulness is working without anybody doing it. It has its own momentum. Even wisdom is impersonal. This is another great discovery in practice. Initially, it feels like a heavy trip. I have to be wise. I have to be careful. I have to be mindful. It, is, it actually feels heavy. But it's better than not being mindful and not being wise. But eventually, the wisdom, the mindfulness, we see it has its own momentum. It just happens. The mind just sees self-consciousness and abandons it. There isn't a Christine who has to do it. What a wonderful thing not to have to take care of myself. Because wisdom is taking care of things. And let's leave it here. Let's just take a breath or two together. Appreciate these wise teachings. to bring wisdom, mindfulness and wisdom to our experiences, to be quite vigilant, awake to what's arising as a way of deeply caring for this life and taking care of all lives. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.